Zero hours. Catherine Mather. Ow! Zero hours! This is Zero Hours Presents History for Her. And this is The Secret Annex Part 3. On the morning of Friday the 4th of August 1944, Meat went to visit the Secret Annex, had a chat and took their shopping list as usual. She went down to the office and was working with Joe Kleiman and Bette Voskell across from her. At 11am, a man in civilian clothes appeared in the doorway of the office, pointing a revolver at them. Stay put, don't move, he said in Dutch. He then walked through to the back office where Victor Kugler was working. Meep, I think the time has come, said Kleiman. Meep heard Jan arrive to have lunch with them as usual. She grabbed his lunch and the illegal ration cards and met him at the door. She said, Jan, it's wrong here, and sent him away with the evidence. She returned to the office where Bet was very upset. Kleiman gave her his wallet and said to her, Take this, go to the drugstore on the Lelligracht. The owner there is a friend of mine. He'll let you use the telephone. Telephone my wife and tell her what happened, and then disappear. Bep left and Kleiman told Meep that she could also leave, but she told him that she couldn't. The two remained, sat in the office for the next 45 minutes. The police had asked Kugler to help them search the premises. He said the police went upstairs to the storeroom in the main building and they asked what we kept in all those crates, sacks and bags. I had to open them all. I said to myself, if it's only a house search, I hope it will soon be over. But they came upon the bookcase and thus the secret annex. Kugler went up the stairs and the first person he saw was Mrs Frank. He said, Edith, the Gestapo are here. Everyone was gathered in the front room and the police searched the house. Kleiman was called into Kugler's office by a second officer, spoken to and arrested along with the Franks, the Van Pels, Fritz Pfeffer and Victor Kugler, who were led out of the building and put into trucks around 1.30. Meep Hayes had recognised from his accent that the man with the revolver, Carl Silberbauer, was Viennese. She told him that she was also from Vienna. He was very angry at her, screaming abuse, but ultimately let her stay behind at work. He said... From personal sympathy, from me personally, you can stay, but God help you if you run away. Then we take your husband. I'll be back to check on you. One wrong move and off you go to prison. At the end of the working day, Bep returned and the two women went upstairs to the secret annex. The place had been ransacked. Meep noticed the pages of Anne's diary which had been tipped out of her dad's briefcase where she kept it and was left all over the floor. They gathered up all the papers. Margot also kept a diary but they were unable to find hers. They had to move quickly for fear that the police would return and catch them. It was illegal to remove Jewish possessions from a house. As they left, Meep caught sight of the soft beige shawl with roses on it that Anne used to put around her shoulders as she combed her hair and she took it with her. Meep stored Anne's diaries in the drawer of her desk, never reading them. Meanwhile, the helpers and hiders were taken to the SD building on the Utebrustraat for interrogation. The Nazis wanted to know if they were aware of any other hiding places, which they were not. From there they were separated. Johannes Kleiman and Victor Kugler were taken to the detention centre on the Amersfoort, while the Franks, Van Pels and Pfeffer were sent to Vesterbot. Joe Kleiman was released from the camps after a few weeks upon request of the Red Cross, given his stomach complaints. The next day, Jan Hayes went and brought the news to Fritz Pfeffer's wife, Lottie, who reportedly took it very well. Meep Hayes returned to work as usual. She was approached by one of the sales representatives at Apexa, who suggested that she go to the Austrian police officer, Silberbauer, and try to buy the Hyder's freedom. She tried to do so, but was unsuccessful in her attempts. On the transport to Vesterbork, Anne would not move from the window. It was summer and she wanted to see the fields and villages. 
She was initially quite happy to be at Vesterborg, simply because she could be outside. They were sent to the S barracks, which were the punishment barracks, as they had been in hiding. The conditions were poor, and men and women slept and worked separately, but could spend evenings together. Women had to work all day disassembling batteries. It was a very messy job, and people began to get a cough from breathing in all the chemicals. On the 3rd of September, 1944, all eight of the people in hiding were put onto the last transport from Vesterborg to Auschwitz. The Frank family were loaded into a cattle car with around 60 other people for a journey that was to last three full days with no breaks and no food. People slept leaning against each other. There was a bucket for a toilet which was filled within the first hour, some straw on the floor and a small candle in a can hanging from the ceiling. The train stopped for a while as some people in another carriage had sawed through the floor of the carriage and climbed out, letting the train run over them. A woman had lost her hands and a man lost an arm, but they did manage to escape. This train ride was the last time the Frank family were together. Upon arriving at Auschwitz, the doors to the train were flung open by the guards, and over the loudspeakers instructions were screamed to leave your belongings behind in the cars, and for men to line up on one side and women on the other. There were bright floodlights which were very disorientating. Then came the initial selection by Mengler, the healthy to the right and the sick children and the elderly to the left to be immediately gassed. This is what happened to Anne's friend, San Lederman, who was gassed with her parents upon arrival at Auschwitz on the 16th of November 1943. Everyone from the secret annex made it through this initial selection. Everyone was then sent to have their numbers tattooed to their left forearm before being told to strip and having their head and other body hair removed. Then everyone was sent to the showers and not given a towel to dry themselves with. They were given an ill-fitting selection of clothes to wear and then sent to roll call. It was only at this point that people were given a sip of water and a slice of bread. Auschwitz was a very tough place to be. It was a death camp, not a wet camp, and it was designed with humiliation in mind. People would have to carry heavy rocks from one side of the camp to the other and then back again. Roll calls would often last hours. Everyone would have to stand in rows and be counted, and if someone wasn't there, a guard miscounted or somebody died, the counting would often have to begin all over again. Often you would have to attend roll call naked, regardless of whether it was winter, as the guards would use this opportunity to inspect prisoners. Edith, Anne and Margot are inseparable at Auschwitz. When Anne is sent to the Kratz lock for her scabies, Margot volunteers to go with her. Edith along with Lenny de Jong van Naden digs a hole by the barracks wall so that she can talk to her daughters and smuggle them extra bread. Despite being covered in spots and sores from scabies they managed to survive a selection whilst in the sick barracks. Anne and Margot spent only about two months in Auschwitz. In late October, early November they are selected for a transport to Bergen-Belsen, a work camp in Germany. Auguste van Pels goes too but Edith and Otto Frank, Hermann and Peter van Pels stay in Auschwitz. Fritz Pfeffer is sent to Neuengamme, which is also in Germany. He dies on the 20th of December 1944 of illness, exhaustion and deprivation. The Russian army are advancing and the Nazis are eager to clear the concentration camps in the east in the hopes of killing as many people as possible and also covering their tracks. Distraught at the loss of her daughters, Edith Frank's condition begins to rapidly deteriorate. She's put in the sick barracks and on the 6th of January 1945 she dies of starvation and exhaustion. People were initially very pleased to be going to Bergen Belsen. It was a work camp, not a death camp like Auschwitz, so the chances of survival will be greater. Anne's old school friend, Hannah Gosler, had been sent to Bergen Belsen on the 15th of February 1944 and found it to be a better camp. Families were not separated and everyone got to keep their own clothes. The problem was that the camp was not equipped to deal with how many people were about to be sent there. Hannah Gosler noticed one morning that a wire fence stuffed with straw had been erected down the middle of the camp and that large tents were being put to accommodate the new arrivals. The journey from Auschwitz to Bergen-Belsen was not a pleasant 
anyone. Although people were given food and water and the train did stop occasionally to let people off, the journey took a long time and they were shot at by Allied forces who mistook the train for a soldier transport. Upon arriving at Cell Station, the prisoners had to walk to the camp in the cold and rain. The Frank sisters shared a blanket as they sat and waited for the tents to be finished and they argued as to whether they should go in first or last. People were pushing and shoving to get into the tents out of the rain. There were around a hundred people in each of the tents. The first night they were there, there was a tremendous storm which blew down two or three of the tents, injuring a lot of people and some even died. People had to remain in the tents for a few days while space was made for them elsewhere in the camp and then they were transferred to stone or wooden barracks. In early February, when there was snow on the ground, an older woman mentioned to Hannah Gosler that there were Dutch people on the other side of the fence and that she had spoken to an Auguste Van Pels. That night she went to the fence and Mrs Van Pels brought Anne, who said that Margot couldn't come as she was sick in bed. She was a broken girl. She began to cry and said, I don't have any parents anymore. Anne reported that they were cold and there was no food on that side of the wall. They agreed to meet the next evening at 8pm and Hannah, who had recently received a package from the Red Cross, threw over a small parcel of food to Anne. Then she heard Anne screaming. The woman next to her had caught the package and stolen it. But two or three days later, they were able to successfully throw a package over the wall to Anne. They met three or four times. The Frank sisters were very determined to keep going to the fence, despite how dangerous it was for them to sneak out at night. And in this time, Hannah's dad died in the sixth barracks, leaving just her and her little sister. Anne and Margot became increasingly ill. Typhus was rife in the camp, given the close quarters that everyone was living in, and they inevitably caught it. Typhus is an infectious disease spread by lice and fleas and the symptoms include a fever, headache, a rash, sensitivity to light and altered mental state. By February 1945, both Anne and Margot were very emaciated and unwell. They had the most undesirable bunk in the barracks. They were in the bottom bunk by the door. It was very cold and whenever the door was opened, they could be heard screaming for it to be closed. They squabbled often due to the typhus. One day, Anne went to Yanni Brand's Brillskeeper, who was a nurse, wrapped only in a blanket. She had hallucinations of fleas and lice and thrown all of her clothes away in the middle of winter. Yanni got some more clothes and fed her some of her food rations. Two days later, Margot slipped trying to get out of her bunk and the shock of the impact killed her. She was 19 years old. This causes Anne to give up completely. She now believes that she's completely alone in the world. The next day, she dies of typhus, aged just 15. Their bodies are dragged outside of the barracks, along with everyone else who died that night, collected and buried in a mass grave. That same month, August van Pels is sent to Buchenwald in central Germany, where she's brutally murdered on the last transport by Nazis who throw her underneath the train where she dies immediately. She was 44 years old. Two months later, on the 15th of April 1945, Bergen-Belsen was liberated by the British. Otto, Edith, Hermann and Peter remained at Auschwitz. Hermann had injured his thumb quite seriously and asked if he could work inside until it had healed properly. At the next election, in October or November 1944, he was sent to the gas chambers as Otto and his son Peter watched. He was 46 years old. Between the 17th and 21st of January 1945, the Nazis cleared the entirety of Auschwitz, sending approximately 56,000 prisoners on what was to become known as the Death March. Walking in temperatures of minus 20 degrees between 9,000 and 
15,000 people died as they were walked deeper into German-held territories. Otto Frank is left behind at Auschwitz as he is in the sick barracks, and he begs Peter van Pels to find a hiding place and stay behind too, but Peter refuses and is sent on one of the death marches, ending up in Mauthausen concentration camp in Austria. Here, he is put to work, doing very heavy mining for the construction of an underground ball-bearing factory. There is no health care whatsoever, and he ends up in the infirmary. The American army liberate Mauthausen on the 5th of May 1945. Peter died five days later on the 10th of May, aged 18. On the 27th of January 1945, the Russian army liberates Auschwitz. Most of the people left behind are either people who hid to avoid being sent elsewhere, or the sick, who the Nazis assumed would just die anyway. Also hiding in the sick barracks at Auschwitz were mother and daughter Fritzi and Eva Geringer, Viennese Jews, who had relocated to Amsterdam upon the German invasion of Austria with their husband and father, Eric, and the son and brother, Heinz. Like the Frank family, they had also gone into hiding, however the people hiding them was not as well-intentioned as the secret annexes' helpers. The Geringers had split up, as was more common for families to do when going into hiding. Fritzi and Eva had gone into hiding together, and Eric and Heinz had gone into hiding together. The woman hiding Eric and Heinz kept demanding ever-increasing amounts of money to keep them hidden, which they couldn't afford, and as such they had to find somewhere else to stay. A Dutch nurse, who was rumoured to be a part of the resistance, agreed to take them in and Fritzi and Eva went to visit them when they were settled into the new hiding place. The nurse, it turned out, was a Nazi agent and she turned them all in. The journey home to Amsterdam from Auschwitz was a difficult one since Europe was still at war. The Russian army took all remaining prisoners from Auschwitz to Katowice on open cattle trains where they arrived on the 5th of March. They stayed there until the 31st of March when they undertook a three-day journey to Cernovitz in Ukraine. From there they went to Odessa, the Ukrainian port city on the Black Sea, where they stayed for six weeks before boarding the HMS Monowai, a New Zealand troop ship, on the 20th of May, which took them to Marseille. A week later they arrived, where they boarded a train to South Holland and then were able to get a bus to Amsterdam. The reception back in Amsterdam was not especially warm. The hunger winter of 1944, in which roughly 22,000 Dutch people died, the Nazis had placed a food embargo on the Western Netherlands following the railway strike of September 1944, and the four-step of Dutch men to the labour camps made people slightly resentful of the immigrants returning to their country, looking to take resources. The attitude of people was, as Eva Schloss, or Eva Geringer, a maiden name, said was, we took you in and looked after you in the 1930s. What more do you want from us now? Luckily, they were able to get their old home back, and all they had to do was wait for Eric and Heinz. On the 3rd of June 1945, Meep Hayes looks out of her window to see Otto Frank walking towards their door. He moved in with them and stayed there for seven years. He returned to work, and although he knew his wife was dead, he held out hope for his daughters and kept searching. On the 25th of July, Otto receives a letter from Yanni Brands Rilsleeper, telling him that his daughters have died. Two weeks later, Fritzi Geringer receives a letter from the Red Cross informing her that her husband and son died of sickness and exhaustion in Mauthausen after being sent on a death march. Otto and Fritzi, who had not known each other too well before the war began, talked about their shared experience. In time, this blossomed into something more, and on the 10th of November 1953, they got married. They relocated to Switzerland as the memories of Amsterdam were too painful for them both, and they worked together on the Anne Frank House, which opened on the 3rd of May 1960 and they answered letters. Anna Gosler said he really became happy again. I have asked myself how can you live like that only in the past? Apparently he was able to set that aside 
I don't believe that he was a broken man later. However, this may not be the case, as Eva Schloss talks about her family life after the war in her book. He threw himself into his work with the Anne Frank house, and while he was a wonderful grandfather to her children, he always felt Anne's presence. He would say, Anne wouldn't do that and so on. The Dutch government offered to investigate who it was that had betrayed the people of the secret annex, but Otto didn't want to know. The fee for handing in dues to the police was seven and a half guilders, which is about £50, so that would have meant whoever handed them in would have got about £400. A lot of money, but not enough money to send eight people to their deaths. Joe Kleiman died in 1959 after suffering a fatal heart attack at his desk at Opecta. Victor Kugler had managed to escape from the camp he was held at after they came under fire on a forced march. He emigrated to Canada in 1953 and died at age 81 in 1981. Bette Foskell went on to marry Cor Van Wyck in 1946 and she lived her dream of being a mother. They had four children. She died aged 64 on the 6th of May 1983. In 1950, Meep and Jan have their only child, Paul, and remain very active in the work of the Anne Frank house. Jan dies in 1993, aged 87, and Meep dies in 2010, aged 100. While this story and a lot of accounts portray the Dutch in a very positive light, I feel that, for the sake of balance, I should also mention some of the failings of the Netherlands during and after the war. Meep Hayes is very positive about the Dutch people in her book, and while I don't think that she's lying, it's important to remember that we all live in our own bubbles, thinking that everyone believes the same as we do. The Netherlands had the greatest number of Jewish victims in Western Europe, with 1.5% of the population being Jewish, only 25% survived the war, as opposed to France and Belgium, whose Jewish population accounted for 0.75% of the population, but 75% of Belgian Jews survived and 60% of French Jews. 85% of Italian Jews survived and all Danish Jews did. So the question is, why was this the case? In an article on the Anne Frank House website by Pim Griffin and Ron Zeller, they argued this was because the Belgian and Dutch governments fled following invasion, meaning that the German police were in complete control, more so in the Netherlands than in Belgium. In France, the Vichy government had been set up, and while they were very much a puppet government who were anti-Semitic, they were able to exercise more control over the anti-Jewish laws that were being passed. While initially the French government sent more Jews to camps than the Nazis would have been able to do alone, facing pressure from the Americans and French protest groups, the government reined in the deportations from late 1942. In the Netherlands, the Nazis issued thousands of provisional exemptions from deportation, which they gradually rescinded, but this didn't give people people the chance to go into hiding. Similarly, they left Jewish hospitals, orphanages and homes for the elderly alone for a long time to lull people into a false sense of security. In contrast, the Belgian deportations happened by violent roundups in the street, meaning that people quickly went into hiding. Around 90% of Belgium's Jewish population were refugees from the East, who were well aware of what being deported meant, so they were quick to go into hiding. In France, two out of three deported Jews were arrested and handed over to the Germans by the ordinary police of the country itself. In the Netherlands, it was only one in four. In Belgium, one in six. Approximately one third of 30,000 Jews in hiding in the Netherlands were betrayed. However, from a more cynical viewpoint, it's important to remember that anti-Semitism wasn't a German import. The NSB was set up in 1931 by Dutchmen, 
initially just a fascist organisation but became openly anti-Semitic by 1936 and it had 100,000 members during the occupation. There were considerably more collaborators than people in the resistance. The Dutch trams and railways operated so well that more Jewish people were deported than were ever asked for. While the Dutch government could have sent care packages through the Red Cross to the camps, as the Danish and Norwegian governments did, they chose not to, which intensified the suffering of their citizens while they were there. Dutch civil servants have been criticised for being complicit in carrying out Nazi orders and the persecution of Jews. Neither was any resistance put up in the dismissal of their colleagues after they were forced to sign the Aryan Declaration. And it wasn't even as though they did nothing because it didn't affect them directly. L.E. Visser, the Jewish chairman of the Supreme Court of the Netherlands, was dismissed in September 1940 and replaced by a National Socialist. With the exception of J. Donner, all other judges just accepted his disappearance without public protest. And after the war, for the Jewish people that did return, there was not an especially warm welcome. For example, some stateless Jews of German origin were locked up in the same camps as the Nazis and their collaborators. No special provisions had been made to return property or money that had been stolen from Jewish people by the Nazis, and they still had to pay administrative fees to get their finances returned to them from Lippmann, Rosenthal and Company Bank. Inheritance tax was not waived, despite the fact that people had been systematically murdered on a large scale and it could hardly be described as normal circumstances. The wartime occupation government took 25.9 million guilders from looted Jewish accounts in order to build, maintain and operate the camps of Vestabort and Vucht from where Jews were deported to their deaths. After the war, the government returned to the Jewish community 5.6 million guilders, this being the appraised value of the camps after the Jews had been killed. In effect, the Jewish population appeared to be sent to their deaths. Perhaps we should finish with some words from Anne herself. On Tuesday the 7th of March 1944, she said, I don't think then of all this misery, but of the beauty that still remains. This is one of the things that Mummy and I are so entirely different about. Her counsel, when one feels melancholy, is... Think of all the misery in the world and be thankful that you are not sharing it. My advice is, go outside, to the fields, enjoy nature and the sunshine. Go out and try to recapture the happiness in yourself and in God. Think of all the beauty that's still left in and around you and be happy. I don't see how Mummy's idea can be right, because then how are you supposed to behave if you are going through the misery yourself? Then you are lost. On the contrary, I've found that there is always some beauty left in nature, sunshine, freedom, in yourself. These can all help you. Look at these things, then look and find yourself again, and God, and then you regain your balance. And whoever is happy will make others happy too. He who has the courage and faith will never perish in misery. And thus concludes this episode of The Secret Annex. If you want to look into this any further... The uh, resources that I used are as follows. There is an essay called The Other Side of the Anne Frank Story, The Dutch Role in the Persecution of the Jews of World War Two" by Frank Bovenkirk, which you can find on academia.edu. I used the Jerusalem Centre for Public Affairs, which is jcpa.org. My name is Anne, she said, Anne Frank, uh, a book by Jacqueline Van Marsen. Anne Frank Remembered by Meet Hayes and Alison Leslie Gold, which is a book but also a documentary. The Last Seven Months of Anne Frank, written by Willie Lindver. Anne Frank in the Secret Annex, Who Was Who, which is by the Anne Frank House. Anne Frank House, a museum with a history. The Life of Anne Frank by Menno Metzala and Rude van der Rohl. After Auschwitz by Eva Schloss. And also, I would highly recommend visiting the Anne Frank House in Amsterdam, which cost €9.50.